Uh, Michelle, just to clarify, I'm going to introduce you as the senior technical editor of Esper. It's not Esper something, it's just Esper. Yeah, we usually prefer saying like Esper.io because there's, you know, former Secretary of Defense Mark Esper and the uh, general term for like psychics and whatever. So, um, what? yeah. Psychics are called Esper. Yeah. I think ESP, also man. Runner. ESP, ESP or oh, I and I think that our, our company's name has come from like a blade, the, the computer and Blade Runner. Right. But yeah, that's why we prefer just Esper.io to avoid any confusion. Hello, this is the Android Police Podcast, episode four for April 28th, 2022. My name is Daniel Bader. This week on the show, we are talking Android 13 Beta 1 and a couple of other small uh, bits of news, including a Pixel Watch leak from a restaurant or something. We're not really sure if that actually happened. This week on the show, to my virtual left, Ara Wagner, how are you? I'm I'm good. I'm expecting a lot of packages in the next few days, and then my parents show up. But thankfully, I have everything ready for them to show up early. Yay! Packages. What What are you talking about? New pants, new stickers. Oh, okay. New Nothing laptop. Tech. Okay, some tech. Some tech. Stickers stickers for your laptop, maybe. Maybe. Hopefully. Maybe. We'll see. All right. Well, also joining the show for, I guess, the first time since the reboot, our senior editor, Ryan Hager. How are you, man? Uh, I'm a little sick, so I might be a little slow here, but I'm otherwise all right. That's good, because that, then you'll be at the same pace as, as me and everybody else. <laughs> you're, you're, you're usually the fast talker, so I, uh, I appreciate it. It takes you I down a peg. definitely be a little slower on the uptake today, yeah. Sets you up with the rest of the plebs. All right, well, to fill in that gap, we are very pleased to uh, bring you Michelle Rahman, the senior technical editor of Esper.io, former EIC of XDay developer. How are you, man? Welcome to the show. Great to be here, uh, Daniel. Thanks for inviting me. Great to finally be on the, the rebooted Android Please podcast. Yeah. used to listen to the old show back in the day, but uh, never had a chance to get on. Well, you have your own podcast now, which I'll let you plug at the end of the show, but uh, I listen to that every week. It, it's made me realize how little I actually know about Android, so I'm really glad that you're on here to help us figure out some of the nuances of Android 13 Beta 1. Let's actually jump in right now. Michelle, you have probably the only definitive Bible of Android 13 on the internet right now at Esper. Walk us through the evolution of Android 13 from the beginning, the first developer preview, the second developer preview, and now the first beta. How significant a release is Android 13? When we see it in July or August, when it finally gets released to the public, how would you compare it to previous Android releases in terms of significance? Certainly not as significant as Android 12 for users. Like on the surface level, Android 12 brought Material U throughout the interface, completely revamped the settings, the lock screen, introduced theming for Pixel devices, introduced the themed icons in beta. A lot of that stuff has been carried over to Android 13 and improved upon. Like themed icons is now available for all applications that opt into it. Material U uh, theming has been applied to more areas of the interface. The latest beta has more theming options. So like it builds upon the user interface changes introduced in 12. And there are, of course, other new features that users might be interested in, such as the clipboard editor overlay and a couple of other things, like the ability to control smart home devices from the lock screen for apps that opt in. But like 
if you're just looking for a laundry list of new user-facing features, you probably won't be very excited by what Android 13 has to offer. But that doesn't mean it's not a substantial update because that's the thing that is always betrayed by Google's quite short blog posts. They (laughs) often do a pretty poor job of summarizing what's actually new in each developer preview or in each platform release. And I think that's probably intentional. They don't like to go too deep into what's Mm -hmm. new. And like they prefer like, if you're a developer, you're going to look through the the API difference anyways. You're going to try to figure out what's new. Although I think they overestimate how many people actually do that. Mm -hmm. And for platform developers, they have a whole separate site of the website, source.android.com, where they actually post detailed technical documents about the new platform features. But they only do that way later, like after the release has been made. And they also have like private partner conferences and discussions to like tell their closest Android OEM partners what's actually happening, what's new. But unless you're an OEM partner, and unless you're willing to wait until like August, September, whenever the stable is out, you're probably going to look at what Google's released and think, there's like nothing new here. Why should I care? And that's the impression most people have been getting with every Android release, except for like 12. 12 was so obviously user-facing, front-loaded. But on the surface, yeah, 13 doesn't look like it's very exciting. But if you actually take a look and like do a deep dive into every difference, there's a lot that's changing. If I'm just looking through developer documentation on Google's Android developer site or even on your big Android 13 deep dive, the APIs, the new APIs that Google has made available to developers, some of those seem pretty significant. And you often talk about how new APIs, some of them are made available to older versions of Android, some of them through existing libraries, others you have to target the latest SDK version. Can you talk quickly about some of the APIs that users will be able to see benefits from or developers will be able to take advantage of that might actually have a a meaningful impact in how they use their phone day to day? I think there are three in particular that I think users will immediately benefit from. So the first one being um, the system photo picker Um, that will benefit both users and developers. So this is one of the ones that will actually be available on older Android devices because it's not really a new API. What Google is doing is they've added a new application to one of their mainline modules. And because the way mainline is distributed, it's able to be backported, shipped to older devices. So because of this, they added a new application that includes a handler for a very common intent that applications can send. And whenever this intent is sent, this new application responds to it, and it's able to provide a photo picker for applications. Just by rolling out this new app, to Android, I think, 11 plus devices is what they plan to do. They're able to provide a brand new user interface for picking photos. And because this application is a system application, it's able to have the necessary permissions to read your gallery, to to view your gallery and select those photos on behalf of applications. So any application that wants to say, hey, user, pick whatever photo you want to edit, itself doesn't need any permissions to view those photos. It just calls the intent the photo picker app responds and then lets the user pick those photos and then it sends those photos back to the application. This all sounds a lot like the uh, photo picker that's in uh, iOS. Have we seen what the UI for this looks like yet? Oh yes, it's already available in 13 beta and the developer previews as well. And it's already technically available in earlier versions. It's just hidden. It's just not enabled by default yet while we're waiting on Google to roll it out. I like the way it looks. I like the animation. It comes up from the bottom. It feels pretty native. And in my experience, preferable to having to, it basically replaces the file app intent, right? Where you go in and have to choose between 
a million different applications to find your photos. Going into Google Photos to look through all of your albums or something like that to pick a photo, I, I always found that to be excruciating. It's like six steps to get to the photo you want to pick. I kind of disliked the uh, sort of arbitrary drawing a line between photos and other types of files in the uh, two different forms of pickers that iPhones had. I found it like personally frustrating. It was like, just treat all files as files. So I, I'm sort of on the other side of the fence. I don't like this change. Uh, I'm waiting to see more about how it's going to be implemented, what it looks like. But for me, it's it's sort of the opposite. I hate having to think about treating different files different ways. I, I can agree with that. Hmm. The original documents provider or the files app that Daniel mentioned is still there. And so if an application wants a user to pick a file that's not a photo or a video, that's not contained within like the gallery provider, then the original file picker can still be open and the user can still access that. This is just intentionally made specifically for picking photos and albums so that it's a much nicer experience than going to the regular old files app. I like the idea in the abstract, but like if you've used Slack on an iPhone, the selecting a photo versus a file on that, there's there are two different icons. I just, it seems like it's an arbitrary distinction to me and I always mix them up. So it, I, I just, maybe it'll take a while to get used to, but I'm not initially a fan of the idea. Yeah, I think that's fair. I also think Slack's UX is just bad in general, because it's also yeah, bad on that Android. That could be tinting um, things a Irrespective bit. of what version yeah. of Android you're using. So Slack, get your stuff together. Michelle, you mentioned two other APIs that you think are significant. So the one that I'm sure a lot of users will immediately notice when they upgrade to Android 13 is that now applications will have to request permission to be able to post notifications. Whereas previously it was opt-out, any application you installed immediately had permission to post notifications. Now it's opt-in, where you have to actually explicitly grant permission to an app in order for it to post notifications. The way it works is a little complicated based on target API level and whether or not the app has been newly installed or is being previously installed before these are upgraded. But in general, now if an app wants to post notifications, it needs permission to do so. And I think this will probably heavily reduce the number of apps that are silently installed in the background or installed like a month ago and then say, hey, we have this 35% off sale. Come back, tap on us, and please use our service again. Because a lot of users will think, I probably won't need notifications from this the moment they install it. Yeah. Uh, Uber Eats is a very, very egregious example of this. I get notifications from Uber Eats every day telling me about some restaurant that I don't care about. But aren't notifications essentially required for when you're actually placing an order with Uber Eats? That way it can tell you when it's on the way, when it's here. I'd l I mean, yes, I, I agree. Because, I mean, unless, still, unless it still, has uh, the option of allow for the next, like, hour and then turn off i mean they still abuse or allow this time only which isn't an option it's a yes or no toggle right now i wonder if they use channels i haven't even checked <laughs> a lot of apps don't specifically to work around people who want to try to prevent oh yeah spam. they do use channels so i should have just turned it off anyway i can just complain because <laughs> uber sends too many notifications but for things like games this this will be pretty handy where they're like come back we have a you know a sale for points or whatever or your town needs you you can get rid of all that crap immediately for applications that actually do need to use notifications for like legitimate reasons, they're going to have to now go out of their way to explain to the user why they need that permission. And in fact, I think you're already starting to see that with some applications. When I opened up Chrome on my Pixel 4 with Beta 1, the first time it actually had a screen saying like, here's why you should enable notifications on this. And the Sync for Reddit dev actually showed me a screen of his development build. I think he's already rolled it out, but like that has a page showing why you should grant notifications because if you don't, you won't get messages from Reddit. Yeah. 
I mean, that's good, right? You should have to earn the trust of the user. Android users have sort of taken it for granted for so long that once you install an app, they just get to run Ramshot over whatever UX they want. And slowly, Google has been paring back what apps are allowed to do. I liked the ability for Google to retrench permissions for apps that you haven't used for a long time. I think that rolled, was that Android 11 or Android 12 when they rolled that out? Android 11. Android 11, yeah. So that's a, like, Google has taken steps to do this for years. I just, I'm surprised it took as long as it has for notifications to be part of that. So what's the last API? This one will benefit multilingual users the most, probably won't impact anyone else. It's a per app language picker. If you wanted to have your system displayed in one language and an application of your choice displayed in another language, in previous versions of Android, you'd have to hope that the application itself provides language options, like its own built-in language picker. And that's not always done because it wasn't always straightforward for developers to implement, and it just wasn't the very best experience. So now on Android 13, they're providing a way for users to pick the language of an application on a per-application basis provided that application actually has strings defined in that language. But this provides a way for users to choose they want one application in Spanish, one in English, one in Italian, for example, if they're like trilingual, and the rest of their interface in English, if they desire. Like anyone who lives abroad, and like a lot of your local applications are in Chinese or something, and you know, you primarily speak English, you're probably going to see a lot of use out of this feature because Oftentimes, the translations and applications, they're just not very good. Do we know what the technical requirements were for apps to implement this? Because I know when the feature first rolled out, and it's, it's hidden in uh, beta one, but when it first rolled out, it didn't work in a lot of applications that did actually have their own language settings. So is there a specific requirement for like the manifest or, or how the strings for the different languages are implemented in order for the feature to work? I'm not actually sure about that. From when I played around with it, it seemed like it just worked out of the box for me. I didn't think any applications actually need to be updated to support having its language change. It seems like it's a kind of thing that's applied by the system. The system already recognizes that this app provides strings in X or Y language. So why not, when you're launching the application in its sandbox, like tell it, instead of using the user's default system language, use this language instead. Yeah, so it seems like the kind of thing that apps wouldn't really need to opt in to support. I did see that there are some like manifest related things that are related to this, but I'm not sure how they play in. I haven't really like looked dived that deep into that part yet. Well, also, is this feature hidden right now or is it broken? Because it was working before and now it doesn't, right? No, it, Google reached out to us actually after we published our article and said that the APIs have not been removed, but they found some visual issues with the settings. So they removed that ah. from beta one, but it'll come back in a future beta release. Okay. Nothing has changed meaningfully in the implementation, I think. Okay, because... I kind of wanted to play with that because I was not on any of the developer previews. I just downloaded beta one because I believe in OTAs and not having to flash my phone and download everything again. I, um, I believe in a thing called OTA. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to it, especially because, yeah, a lot of like niche apps are mostly designed in one language and they don't even, a lot of times for like theming and customization stuff. They basically only design for English because it's not an app where you actually need to work, know much of the words anyway. Yeah, that's so fair. So this will be hopefully fun to see more of that become more accessible. Let's talk a bit about the beta itself. So as we know, the first public beta is when 
most early adopters will pick it up. I'm guessing probably an order of magnitude more people using the beta than there were the developer previews for the reasons you mentioned, Ara. You actually had a chance to go hands-on with it. You've written up your impressions of it. So you're using it with a Pixel 6, right? Yeah, I have it on a Pixel 6, the Pixel 5a, and I need to actually let it finish installing on the Pixel 4a because that's what I'm currently using for my Android 12 before, but I opted it into the beta before I realized I should be doing that. I gotta say, especially on the Pixel 6, the Android 13 beta 1 actually seems smoother and more stable than 12 has for the majority of the last six months. Um, <laughs> that's I, not hard. Hey, my Pixel 6 have been working fine. At least on fine. the Pixel 6. I didn't have any of the like big, breaking, major features of your phone bugs. But I do agree with some of the comments that I've seen so far. After only 24 hours, it's hard to say definitively whether or not battery life has improved or downgraded. But I honestly think on the Pixel 6, battery has upgraded a little bit. And my cell signal actually seems to be a slight bit better, too. Because in my apartment, I usually don't get like any bars. And I'm actually seeing like two to four bars in my apartment regularly now. So I'm cautiously optimistic on that, but it's still early days. I will say I have animations turned off on my Android phone. And that apparently seems to be saving me a lot of the headaches because most of the quote unquote bugs that our coworkers are finding, a lot of those are visual and things that are like, if you hit the power button while an animation is still fading out, it can damage something or whatnot. So it's been good for me, honestly. I keep expecting something to break because it's beta. Something's always inherently broken, but the long-pressing Bluetooth thing doesn't crash the UI for me, and I don't have any of the issues with random reboots with the USB-C headset because I'm like the vast majority of people and use wired earbuds in 2022. Wireless. So it's, it's been smooth, and what? I've been loving... You, don't use you use wired earbuds? I don't. Nope. Oh, I'm yeah, okay. all wireless. Sorry. I yeah, yeah. Speaking of music and headsets and all of that stuff, I absolutely, like, my number one favorite thing out of Android 13 so far is that new now playing bar in quick settings and notifications and on the lock screen. It's so fun. It's, it's so yes. fun, but they added more functionality. Like, in the previous widget, you were lucky if you got previous song, play, pause, next song, and maybe like or dislike if you were on YouTube music. But because it was a minimized notification, uh, they minimized the player most of the time. You only really got pause play and next previous. The new now playing has room for four different controls alongside the progress bar, which you can tap to seek along. And the progress bar actually squiggles and moves to the music, which is nice. I'm very much enjoying that. But it lets me control shuffle and repeat from my notification shade. And oh my gosh, I cannot remember the last time I had this. Because, I mean, for YouTube Music, it's always defaulted to like, dislike over shuffle and repeat. But for this one, it switched. So I think this is the first time I've had those controls in my notification shade since Google Play Music. Rest in peace, my friend. So I've, I've just been loving it, especially because since the album art is full screen, we have more room for the track information. We have more room for the controls. It's easier to pipe the music where you want to from the speaker button that's at the top. I really wish that they would add more of the cast devices to that list and not just be bluetooth but i'll take what i can get for now i've just been loving it it's a small thing but it makes me so happy every time i see it i think that's exactly what these new android versions are about right you, you find one or two minor functionality or visual improvements and you glom onto that as like this is what i'm looking forward to this is what i want my fellow android people to enjoy when they finally get the update ryan wh what about you how do you feel about the uh, the beta so far? 
Who, me? Oh, I, I've only been using it for like the last day. I just switched off of the uh, uh, OnePlus N25G. And I mean, yeah, to most appearances, it's just Android 12 done over again with a couple of slight visual changes. But moving back around to uh, our discussion of Media Output Picker, we know there's an audio continuity API coming out and there was this tap to transfer feature that was spotted. I'm very curious to see how these sort of things are going to integrate into the redesigned media picker and other audio-related changes that seem to be on the horizon. We might see some stuff like that coming that uh, makes it a little easier to pick and choose between uh, cast devices and audio destinations. But I I like it so far. I'm most excited for uh, some of the developer-facing changes. The resource economy stuff looks really interesting. I'm hoping that that means some better background app management, but you know I'm not really sure. There's also some other APIs for uh, prefetch and job scheduling that look like they might make a dent in uh, having apps better declare their resources and impact the uh, performance profiling problem that's starting to be an issue. But yeah, I'm getting in the weeds with developer facing stuff. I like it so far and it is stable and I haven't had any issues. Michelle, can you maybe walk us through a little bit about that, the Android resource economy feature and how it might be implemented? Oh Lord, this is a, a big chungus feature. It's really hard to explain. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on this because I understand a small part of it. The Android resource economy is basically saying that you have a device that does not have unlimited power, right? So applications should not be able to queue an unlimited number of tasks. Instead, they should be allotted credits to queue background tasks based on how depleted the battery is. So like, if you have 50% battery, then... Applications should not be able to queue as many tasks in the background as they could if the battery is 100% charged. And the number of credits it takes to do certain tasks will depend on the kind of task that it is. So this is basically a way for the job scheduler system to like decide which tasks take priority for an application to execute in the background and how many of those tasks should be executed overall. It's a clever way to manage background task execution there wasn't really an intelligence, intelligence system in previous versions. It was basically like, we'll queue up your task alongside every other app that wants to queue up a task, and then we'll execute them whenever we think makes most sense. Whenever the device is charging or it's idle for five minutes, then we'll execute all those tasks in batches. This one adds a little bit more intelligence to how many of those tasks can be queued up. Is there precedence for this, as far as you're aware, in mobile development uh, in term, from an operating system level or even from a client level, or has any other OEM ever tried to implement this? Not at this scale, obviously, but are you aware of any other project that tries to apply credits to background tasks and allow, give a bit more granular control to, um, or apply sort of like a machine learning style control to background tasks? You know, I'd be surprised if there was, because this is a very obviously mobile-centric kind of design, because generally on like PCs, you kind of assume they have unlimited power. So you don't really need this kind of complex system to decide <laughs> what can do what in the background. Like a lot of the things like the Linux kernel server side, Windows, it doesn't make, really make much sense for those kind of platforms. So I'm not an expert on those other platforms, so I couldn't tell you if there is something similar somewhere else. 
I think you're probably right. I feel like there is some sort of scheduling system that worked similarly for a little while in like Linux governors, but I don't think it really took off. I'm sort of half remembering something from like seven or eight years ago about somebody trying to do a uh, tiered system like that, but I don't think there are any other platforms that have done something quite like this because the only other mobile platform that really matters is iOS, right? And it's so locked down in terms of what developers can do uh, when it comes to background actions and scheduling actions that uh, they don't need anything like this because there's no freedom to do anything you want in the background. How meaningful will the impact be, do you think, on the end user, if any? That's going to be really hard to say. I think the only one who can actually like do meaningful benchmarks and like um, power metrics would be Google. And they're probably already running those kinds of tests in the background. Like I'm curious to see what they actually say they measure once they actually announce this. Just just from the way it sounds, it sounds like it would make a pretty impactful difference, but these background tasks are not always going to be the biggest contributor to battery train. It's always going to be things like your cellular modem, your display, and of course the experience differs for everyone because like some users will barely have any applications that will execute tasks in the background, whereas some other users will have hundreds of applications that might want to do that. So like the only one who can really give you a good number would be Google because they're going to be collecting data in aggregate and trying to come up with on average users will see a 20% decline in battery use from background task execution or something like that. Does the resource economy only work for apps that explicitly target compatible API versions or API levels, or is this something that can be shoehorned into working with older apps? I'm not sure actually if it affects all apps, regardless of target API level. I do know that just based on what it's affecting, it's affecting Alarm Manager and Job Schedule, which are the two APIs that apps use to do background tests. So Alarm Manager is for whenever an app wants to schedule something to be executed at a specific time, you know, set an alarm for something to happen. Job schedulers, when an app wants something to be done in the background, but doesn't necessarily have to be done at a specific time. So those are the two key APIs. And then like, if you look up work manager, that's basically the overarching library that basically abstracts those two and lets apps not care about what they have to specifically call. Those like two alarm manager, job scheduler and work manager wrapping around it. Those are what apps like have to use if they want something to be done in the background. This is going to impact a lot of applications. I just don't know if it's going to apply these behaviors based on whether or not targeting Android 13 or not. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, we won't know if it has any impact for maybe two or three years until uh, all of the apps are targeting these API levels, right? Yeah. All right. So quick lightning round before we move on. Michelle, you've noticed a couple of things that are not in the beta itself, but hint at future announcements, including support for spatial audio in uh, Android 13. It was implied a little bit during Google's CES announcements. Google announced that I believe it would support spatial audio in some form alongside improvements to fast pair. Uh, But now we actually see the strings inside Android 13 beta 1. How do you think this would be implemented? Is this just something that Tidal or a client would support the actual file format? And then if you have a compatible headset or something like that, or is this hinting at a more universal implementation that like Google is basically taking over the stream and applying spatial effects to it? So what they added in beta one in the vendor partition is a library for an audio spatializer effect. And they implemented the flag that tells the system that there's a spatializer effect available. Now, what actually it needs to happen next would be 
support in applications, I believe, to recognize the spatializer effect and then apply that for sound. I don't know if it's something that can be applied for all audio that's being played out of like the speakers or Bluetooth. I don't think it will need specific headset support in order to work. I think it might like depend on the song itself, whether it can be like spatialized. And uh, the other big part would be head tracking. That will definitely need sensors specifically that are implemented in the headset or earbuds or whatever itself. That will need hardware support. But the spatializer effect, I think, can be purely software. All right. Final thoughts on Android 13 Beta 1. I mean, there's so much more that we didn't cover, including a bunch of... Yeah, I want to I, I want to let you have a, uh, each person have a final say on uh, just their overall impressions and anything else you want to want to close with. All right, we can start with you and your <laughs> your sixteen themes. It's like you got a birthday present. It was a present. I'm just not sure it was a great present because in January when we first started seeing the hints of oh we're going to have multiple different styles of material U themes and we had. Like, Spritz was all desaturated, and Total Spot is what we have right now, and we were going to have vibrant and expressive. And I'm sorry, but the themes that we got in Beta 1, we got more options, but they're still not as bold as I want. Like, I still want to run back to Repainter right now in order to just get the bold colors I really want. I'm sick of this pastel stuff. Like, I am so sick of pastels after a year of material you. Give me bold. Give me neon (laughs) colors. But now playing will keep me satisfied for now, and I'm hopeful that maybe more will come in beta too. If not, Repainter's always there for me. There you go. Ryan, closing impressions on beta one? For me, it's still too early to have really any strong impressions. I hope that some of the developer-facing changes are going to be able to make an impact in both uh, uh, performance profiling and background app management, but you know, we, we won't know for years, let alone uh, until Android 13 is released. So too early for me to have any really strong opinions, but I, I love the squiggly bit. I think that that is uh, the most fun change. The little squiggly progress indicator in music playback is just lovely. It's great. <laughs> Michelle, what about you? So um, I'm actually not running Beta 1 on any daily drivers. It surprises many people to hear for me to say that, that I, I never run betas or DPs on my daily driver. Mostly because I have access to other phones I could just do that on. But I think if you're looking for significant changes to come, you're probably going to be disappointed because most of what's going to be announced is already present in the current builds. It's just hidden from users. So if you're expecting anything like huge to come out in the next few weeks, then I, well, actually, there is one or two things that I'm, I'm working on that seem pretty big, but I'll talk about that later. But my overall impressions of Android 13 are, you know, positive. I do like all the small quality of life improvements, the, the smart home controls, the support for flashlight intensity, um, the screensaver improvements that are coming. Those sound nice, especially if that 2022 detachable Nest Hub gets released. So, yeah, I'm really liking where Android's going. When it gets released. I mean, do we need Big this year? Because, I mean, just last year was just so big. I, I'm kind of happy to go back to the little quiet updates for a little while. Yeah, I, I'm fine with that. You know, I wish Android actually did work that way, but unfortunately, they feel this need to compete with iOS and have a big yearly release, so it's it's going to be that way for the foreseeable future. At least, thankfully, they're finally doing betas for quarterly platform releases, whereas previously they did all that testing internally to disastrous effects with the Pixel 6's, like, first few releases you know they didn't really test so many bugs as ryan has documented very very extensively 
But I think that uh, before we move on from this subject, I want to stress, I think you're right, uh, Michelle, uh, you sort of touched on, uh, I think a lot of the biggest changes are things that we're not going to see immediately because they're for big screen devices, right? Some of the promises that were uh, made with Android 12L are being ultimately fulfilled by Android 13. And so when things like the detachable Nest Hub, if that's running Android, when that lands with a big screen, with the screensaver functionality, with the new multi-user support, with the, uh, uh, in Android 12L, the new uh, launcher interface, all of these other changes are, are, are ultimately going to be pretty big on a certain device category that none of us are really paying attention to, right? Oh, right. And like a lot of these APIs and things they're working on in 13, they have the hooks and like the basic framework for them, but then the actual service and implementation is Pixel proprietary. Yeah. One of the ex- immediate examples I can point to is the cinematic wallpapers that I discovered in DP2. They have the APIs to detect when a wallpaper has changed and then apply a cinematic effect to it. But the actual service that applies those cinematic effects is definitely going to be proprietary. Yeah. And we're probably not going to see that until the actual I.O. at the earliest. Or the Pixel 7 when it launches will have dynamic way out. Yeah. Yeah, I.O. I think is going to be exciting this year. I have high hopes both for the software announcements and hardware as well. And I I do want to, in the last few minutes, just shift our conversation a little bit to this ridiculous Pixel Watch leak that happened over the weekend. Can we quit calling that a leak? That was a plant. Like, there is no way that was a leak. Whatever you want to call it, it was something. So, uh, ostensibly, a Pixel Watch engineering sample was left at a restaurant in Chicago and was not returned to the person who lost it for weeks. So somebody who worked at the restaurant contacted a techie friend of his who then picked it up and sent the information to Android Central, where R and I used to work. And I reached out to the EIC and managing editor there to find out if they really do believe that this was just a restaurant leak. And they said, the guy... He's very sincere. Um, Subsequently, he posted on Reddit, uh, followed up with a bunch of his own images, including images of him wearing the watch with the proprietary bands. So now we basically know what what the watch looks like, how much it weighs, how large the screen is, et cetera. Ryan, I'll start with you. If you've noticed anything in particular about this, what what were your thoughts on on the Pixel Watch after I think you first posted about it in like 2016 or something after all this time of waiting for for this thing to come out. Now it's actually happening. For me, it's all going to come down to the software and hardware aspects that we can't see right now. Seeing the physical shape doesn't really tell me too much other than the fact that Google chose a decent design. But uh, all of Wear OS's shortcomings uh, to date have been with uh, underpowered mediocre hardware and software issues. And neither of those are really, you know, demonstrated with a phone off on somebody's wrist. So I am, I remain cautiously optimistic, but because it's Google and because we have this history of problems, it's cautious. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I'm 100% with you. I want this to be the home run that we all want it to be. But yeah, I, I remain skeptical given the state of Wear OS on the Galaxy Watch 4. Michelle, you host your own podcast. You spoke to a bunch of Wear OS developers recently. It was a great episode. Given that conversation and where you think Wear OS is going, how do you think Google is going to differentiate Wear OS without alienating its hardware partners like Samsung and Fossil? I think as always with Google and their hardware, what the differentiator is going to be software. And what I'm really hoping to see from the Pixel Watch is a substantial 
leap forward in voice recognition because that is the worst aspect of like interacting with the watch. You're supposed to use voice for a lot of it, but the actual on-device recognition pales in comparison to what you can get on the Pixel 6, for example. Like if you have the Pixel 6 quality voice dictation and like interaction, I think the smartwatch experience would be significantly better. Are you happy with what you've seen of the hardware so far? I'm not happy about the proprietary band aspect because yes. like I I have one band that I've been using. Like I just swap between it because I really like how it feels on my wrist. For a first time smartwatch product from Google, like do they really want to risk people saying, Oh, it doesn't support my favorite band, so I'm just not gonna buy it? Like why would they go that way? Well, and also, Google and Samsung and all of them have been all over, like, oh, we're trying to limit e-waste and all that nonsense. And then you go with a proprietary band. I know why they're doing the proprietary band. Well, I have a pretty good idea why they're doing the proprietary band, but come on, guys. Just give us the standard lugs. I don't care if they're hidden, like, under the original Moto 360. Just give us lugs, not this. Google's been hypocritical about sustainability now for years, though. Like, I mean, I, I wish that they actually took any of it seriously. And I know they have their whatever water, seawater cooled uh, data center in uh, northern Europe and a couple of other uh, hand wavy recycled plastic products. But this proprietary band move, if it is legit, like it's just another indicator that they don't actually care. The same as abandoning devices that are still getting uh, support from chipset vendors uh, just because they've met their promise. Google doesn't actually care about sustainability. They just want to be seen as caring about sustainability. Well, yeah. It's marketing. Like, to be fair, those proprietary bands they sell might be like 100% recyclable, for example. Like, we don't know. And but you'll buy them just for that product and you'll throw them away when you're done. Distribution, you know, all the invisible stuff that consumers don't see. So the band it's not going to be 100% recyclable, but it's not contributing to a more sustainable industry. Yeah. It would be a problem. I will say for the bands and the actual photos of a watch on somebody's wrist, although, again, I have a really small wrist, so what looked halfway decent on his wrist is probably going to look freakishly large on mine. Uh, but the proprietary bands, they all seem to be uniquely shaped and angled in such a way that it helps keep the watch mostly elevated away from your wrist because like it looks so big around but it doesn't feel that big on your hand because it only has that small circle on the bottom touching and since the bands are underneath that that helps contribute to that image and helps provide a cleaner look but at the same time i'm looking at that and i'm going oh for smaller wrists this is gonna be a pain yeah i mean 40 millimeter watch face is not tiny right it's still bigger than the smallest apple watch um, actually, it's not anymore, but the Apple Watch is, is squircle-shaped, so yeah. it's a little different. I don't know. I like the design. I think the crown looks good as long as Google can actually take advantage of it and, and not have it be ignored in half of the <laughs> screens that Wear OS currently ignores it on. So long as it is an actual crown and not just a spinny button. Right, exactly. But I'm cautiously optimistic, as Ryan said. I do think it needs to be a better fitness tracker than any Wear OS device released to date, including the Galaxy Watch 4. Ryan has said many times that the Galaxy Watch 4 is just a bad fitness tracker. Google now owns Fitbit. There will be no excuses if this is not Apple Watch level well, in terms of fitness. We saw, uh, we so... literally saw the Fitbit sensors on the underside of the watch. Like, oh, I'm not disputing. Like, that will be there. Yeah, but sensors are only has the equation. You need the software yeah. to back it up. Yeah, you need proper auto workout detection. You need a, a UI that is not dog crap. It's just, it's, it's, it's a whole thing, right? The Apple Watch works because really, when you're working out with it, you don't have to think about it. It's it just works. there and it does everything on its own. Exactly. 
and it visualizes the data in an easily parsable way, but there's enough data that when you sync it with your iPhone in the health app, you actually get some interesting metrics from it. Google Fit is nowhere near that. Fitbit is, and I think Google has obviously been trying to integrate Fitbit into Wear OS for a couple of years now. So, or when did the when when did the acquisition? They gave us a promise last year. Like Fitbit yeah. was one of the like key things when they were announcing Wear OS 3.0, and then we haven't seen anything for a year. So we know the Fitbit Pixel Watch has started. to be where we start seeing it, right? Yes. Yeah, and the especially with the purchase, they, they're they're going to use it for that. I think they were required to. Uh, they can't lock it all down, right? As part of the terms of the acquisition, they still have to uh, um, leave open what was open before and the integrations that existed before. So it's not like we're going to see Fitbit become a uh, Pixel Watch exclusive feature, but uh, um, it should be more deeply integrated than uh, it was before, which was you know not at all. It just was Google Fit integrated, as you said. We're going to leave it there. There's a lot more to say about both of these subjects, but in, in the interest of time, um, Michelle, I would love to, for our listeners, I'm sure there's a ton of overlap, so they probably already know who you are, but if they don't, let people know where they can find you and learn more about your work. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. So if you want to follow me for Android News, you can find me on Twitter at Michelle Ramon. You can also find my blog post at esper.io. As Daniel mentioned, I also do a podcast. It's not a discussion style. We pick one topic and kind of dive deep into it with experts. So it's a great resource if you want to learn um, like a high level about like topics like Wear OS, for example. And yeah, if you want to find me, you can follow me there. Awesome. Ryan, you are, I think you're at Ryan Hager on Twitter. I am. You are. Ara, you're at Ara Wagco. I am at Journey Dan. We are all at androidpolice.com. Check out ours review of Android 13 Beta 1. It's a good read, some nice pictures as well. We'll have tons of coverage of Google I.O. in the next couple of weeks, as well as some really interesting things that we can't yet talk about. So follow us for all of that uh, news, and uh, we will be back next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you soon.